So we'll be in Acts chapter 6 today, if you'll turn there. Anyone here may need New Year's resolutions? Everyone's like, I hate those things. That's cool. Um, I don't make them, but from the ones that I've heard, a lot of them have to do with physical fitness and diet and exercise. And um, One gym chain, it said that they have 40% increased foot traffic in December and January. And then all those good intentions kind of just peter out. Um, and there's various reasons why you might make that resolution. You know, the body is talking to you. Your pants are talking to you. or not quite. And you don't want to buy a new wardrobe and you're too too cheap or vain for that. Like, I'm like, all right, these pants are not fitting. I do not want to buy all new belts. It's time to do more or eat less or something. Um, so good health, it's something that, it's a blessing from God, but we can have, we play a part in maintaining that, don't we? The choices that we make, we realize that that has an impact upon how healthy we are and the things that we're able to do, whether you're playing sport or uh, anything. And, and we need maintenance as far as hygiene and, um, and even as the body, our physical bodies need maintenance and we need to be looking at it and just saying, you know, don't I look good? But am I healthy? Am I clean? Am I making good choices? This kind of evaluation, it needs to happen in the church as well, in the body of Christ. The church benefits from a good diet of the Word of God and regular exercise by obeying it, by practicing it. Because if you're just reading it or listening to it, but you're not responding to it, well, you're not becoming more fit. You could become a bit sedentary in your Christianity. So we're one body, many members all working together, and even as there's the central nervous system of our body connected to the brain, everything talks to the brain, well, Jesus, he is the head of the body, and we're all connected to him. And so we all have a connection with Christ and with one another, and when we're working together to keep that connection uh, open and healthy, we all improve. We all can be healthy and grow. Um, have you found, and I think this probably appeals to the older people in this room, not you young bucks out there, um, but it's easy for us to romanticize our past a little bit. You know, you look back at those photos, and you're like, wow, how slim I was. I was like a superstar. I could run. I could throw. I could lift. There's all these things that I could do. And uh, we can tend to romanticize it and think that we were a superstar and we were really average, but we were better then than we are now. We can have the selective memory that the children of Israel had. God brought them out of slavery. And they cried out to God to save them because they were being oppressed. They were being forced to build cities. Their children were being thrown in the Nile and eaten. You know, They were drowning them in the Nile. And they called out to God and said, God, save us. God sent Moses to save them. He delivers them with a mighty hand. But what did the people do? Shortly thereafter, they complained against God. They said, why have you brought us out here to die? It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Let's get a new captain. We're going back. The leeks, the onions, the cucumbers, you know, the things that we enjoyed. You know, you haven't led us to a land of milk and honey. That was a land of milk and honey that you took us out of. So how quickly they forgot the reality. And we can have that sort of romanticizing when it comes to ministry or think, oh, it was so good that other church or that other time or that one Bible study was so great. And we, we forget that there were unique challenges there too. We can do that with the, and, and think, 
Well, in the early church, they didn't have the problems that we have today. Well, there were problems, and we're going to talk about one and the biblical way they dealt with it. And it's a great example for us in how to deal with conflict. Because right when the church began, it was beset with growing pains and problems and real issues that people could divide over or they could choose to deal with in a godly way. We don't have to go back to the vibrant, growing fellowship that God brings to his people. We can have that now. Are an awesome God. You spoke the word and everything was created. Everything was made that was made, and you have made every living thing, and you've caused us to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice, Lord, to know you, to be called by your name, to join together in the worship of you, and to read your word. We pray, Lord, that you would please fill us with your spirit. Thank you that when we ask according to your will, you hear us, and we can know we have the things we requested of you, and it's your will to give us your spirit. So I pray, you, Lord, you'd pour out your spirit upon us and open our eyes to see. Bless the kids as well as they read of you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It reads, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The early church was marked with explosive growth. You have thousands of people coming to Christ in a day. People from all over the world, it said from every nation under heaven, had come to Jerusalem. These were Jews who had come to hear, to, to go to the feast, and they were born again when they saw and heard the things that were spoken by the apostles, and they believed in Jesus. And so these people comprised the church. Many of them stayed in Jerusalem. And so you've got 10,000 plus people that are honoring God, serving God, uh, not, uh, not looking at things as if they're their own, but sharing, distributing to those who are in need. And there's this conflict as the church grows. And I'm thinking, man, if the church here gained 100 or in a day, there would be some, some changes that would need to be made. Um, and this shows us in the early church, no church is perfect because the people in it are being perfected. No person is perfect, but we are more and more being changed in the image of Christ. People led by the Holy Spirit, they can have conflicts and disagreements about things. At this time, all the church members were Jewish. That's something important to remember. Uh, the two groups mentioned here, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hebrews were those born in Israel. They spoke Hebrew. They were very orthodox in their customs and traditions. The Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek. They were brought up in a Greek culture. And so they, they more tended to perhaps even think in a Greek way and to, to speak about Greek things. And previous chapters talked about how money was given to the apostles and distributed to those who had need. And the Hellenists complained that their widows were being neglected. It seemed like the Hebrew widows were getting more uh, support or help than the Hellenists. 1 Timothy 5, it talks about the conditions of supporting a widow in particular. There's more going on there. So culturally, there was more going on than, than what our modern concept of welfare is. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy 5, it says, Honor widows who are really widows. So this shows us there are widows that the church genuinely should support, and then there are widows that really don't fit the criteria 
for church support. 1 Timothy 5, 4 and 5, it says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So to be considered for support by the church, it meant you were without the support of any family. So if you had family, then they were, it was their responsibility, not the church's, to supply your needs. The family's responsibility before God is not to be trampled on by the church or to let the family off the hook, so to speak. That was something they were to do. Um, and it also said that in verse 9, that you were to be at least 60 years old and the wife of one man. This meant that you weren't uh, having a lot of marriages, that you were chaste. And uh, verse 10 says she should be, which should support them in that. He sums it up in 1 Timothy 5.16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who really are widows. These widows that were financially supported, they were offering a spiritual service unto the Lord. And there can be mistakes on either side. We can err as the church to support widows who are, they are deserving of help from the church. But it can also be unnecessarily burdened by supporting those who don't meet this criteria. So for all of us, as needs come to our attention, and if, if you've ever thought the church should do something, remember that you are part of the church, number one. Uh, but there are times where there's a genuine need or there's a problem that the church is called to address. And so we, we have to look at ourselves first and saying, is the Lord wanting me to do something personally about this? And is it time to get the church involved in dealing with this real need? So these believers, uh, they have this complaint, and it's genuine, as we see in verse 2 in Acts chapter 6. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles didn't ignore this complaint. It was a genuine need, yet they realized that their calling as apostles was prayer and the ministry of the word, the study of it, the teaching of it. Matthew Henry said this, If they must serve tables, they must in some measure leave the word of God. They will be no more drawn from their preaching by money laid at their feet then they will be driven from it by the stripes laid on their backs. That's a good thing to say. This is a good example for us. God's given you a calling. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're a son or a daughter, you have a, you have a responsibility before God to fulfill that role. That's that primary calling. Not because there's so much need in the world, it's easy for us to spread ourselves thin and the name of Christian ministry to neglect that primary calling or a very important calling because we feel like, oh, I'm needed everywhere. And this can happen with pastors where there's people who need, they need, they ask for counsel or they ask for this or that or a speaking engagement or traveling and they feel like, oh, you know, there's a world that needs Jesus and, and I'm obligated to, to do this and, and neglect their own family. And they're not raising their children in the admission, admonition of the Lord. So whatever God's called you to, it's important that you make that a priority 
in your life. That must come first. Um, And if you are a widow, 1 Timothy 5, it's a great picture of how to serve the Lord in that calling. Like you are in that position. This is a way to honor God in it. And so there was this need to better distribute to the widows. Therefore, others were needed to do that work. Serving at the tables, that meant that this is the place where people would come up and they would present the money. And this is the place that money would be distributed as everyone had need. And so the apostles' decision in choosing to stick with their calling in preaching and teaching the word of God and praying, it shows that those aspects are indispensable for the spiritual health of a church. They cannot be neglected. Those are, because this is a real need, but those other things, those are a primary need that they needed to be about. So they addressed the congregation, so they called the disciples together, and they said, seek out from among you men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom that we may appoint over this business. And in the world's eyes, and dare I say in the church, that's strange requirements for people who are going to be handling the money, distributing the money. You think like a business owner or an accountant, or someone who has experience in this, you know, arena. But no, these people, if they are have a good reputation, they're filled with the Spirit and wisdom, they are fully capable to do everything that's required in their ministry. This word, good reputation, it's an interesting word in the Greek because it's the word from which we derive the word martyr. These were people whose lives were already a demonstration of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. And the most suitable candidates for ministry are the people who are already doing it. Not someone who starts serving God because now they have a role or a title. And I like how the apostles, they don't appoint their mates. They don't say, you know what, we need to go find some people who are loyal to us. You know, we don't want to be backstabbed. We want to make sure that these guys, they're solid and they got our backs. That's not the thing at all, is it? Because they asked the people to choose. So they didn't appoint their their own sons or their family or people they were tight with. They said, you guys make the decision. We will approve of it. So they had the right of refusal because of their position of authority. But they said, you guys choose them, they meet this criteria, we'll appoint them. Directing people to seek those from among them to serve is wise because the people would have seen things the apostles would not have seen. I learned this as a youth pastor early on, that that you have the benefit or the curse of seeing everyone on their best behavior. You pretty much, people will give you a side of themselves that's not everything. I think this is common for everyone to a degree. So they would have, they were living with each other, right? Wouldn't a spouse know a lot of whether their, their husband or their wife would be suitable for a role? Because they know them. It might be good if someone was going to get into ministry to ask their kids, hey, how, how's, how does dad with discipline? You know, ask the one that he's disciplining, is he, is he godly in the way that he conducts himself? And the kid would, well probably gave you a pretty honest assessment of what's going on. And because these men would be serving their widows, they got to choose who would do the serving, and so therefore they had a vested interest in choosing people that they said, this is the kind of guy we want to be dealing with, our widows, you know, these women that we love and want to see served well. 
Search from among yourselves. Look out for them. And this is a good practice for us too. That we'd have our eyes open to those who have a good reputation, who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And I, I'm always on the lookout for these people, and, and uh, we all should be. These are the ones that we are to emulate as we follow Jesus Christ and serve him together. And the question is, is your life marked by these attributes? Because these attributes are not just for someone who is uh, in a position of leadership, but anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what should mark our lives. I wish to God that everyone would be filled with the Holy Spirit and have a good reputation outside and within the church. That's one of the qualifications for a bishop or an overseer, is that you have to have a good reputation outside the church, not just within a group, but people in the world that you've worked with. Hey, how does that guy talk? Is he consistent? Is he faithful? And they'll tell you, pretty honestly. Could you turn to 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 15? We see an example of such people. Paul points them out. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 15. It says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such, and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The household of Stephanus, the New King James Version, it says they addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Right, addiction seems like a bad thing, but in this case, it's an inclination towards. It's, it's a habitual thing. Serving was part of their lifestyle as a family. They were about serving God. And there are, by God's grace, families among us who, who are serving, and it's a family thing. People being raised up, people humbling themselves to serve, ministering to one another. And may that be so for all of us, that we would say, you know what? This is something we're about. We serve the Lord. And it says, um, you acknowledge such men, not that you would praise them or glorify them, but that you would recognize this is how I ought to live too. When Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus, we should all, it would be great for all of us to say that, right? Like I'm following Jesus to such a degree that it's an example of how you should be following Jesus. Not that you need to have my convictions or my style or anything, but let's follow him together and be consistent in doing so. Acts 6, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The Hebrews and the Hellenists, they all agree with this directive. They chose seven men. It's significant they all had Greek names. This suggests they too were Hellenists and spoke Greek. They identified with that group that they would be serving. Stephen and Philip, it says, godly men, we'll hear more about them later. Nicholas, he's an interesting case because here's a Gentile who converted to Judaism 
but then he converted to Christianity. So he, he kind of was like almost, well, I don't know. It's not twice saved, but he converted to Judaism from a heathen culture, and then he realizes Jesus is the Messiah that those scriptures talked about. The four remaining men, they're not mentioned again, but all seven unanimously approved by the apostles to serve and minister at those tables. And the commission to ministry was uh, done publicly with the apostles laying the hands on them. There's no power there. They were already filled with the Holy Spirit, but just showing they have our authority to do this work that God's called them to do. So the early church had faced this real strong temptation to split into two, that you'd have the Hebrew side and the Hellenist side. But instead of leaving the church or creating a division within the church, the people worked in submission to God to have a good outcome. I think it's a real tragedy when people choose to leave a church without first addressing people they're offended by or by neglecting to approach leadership when there is a real problem. And and kind of making up your mind, I'm leaving, and I'll tell you why. Having that approach rather than just saying, and, and not saying, I'm leaving if this doesn't get resolved, but saying, because I'm committed to Christ and to this body, here's a problem that we need to deal with. Totally different opinion, right? See the results of working through something? This conflict and commitment to Christ, it says, then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is remarkable. So instead of a split, they become more fruitful. And the word of God goes out, and even some of the priests are now serving the Lord and following Jesus. I don't believe this would have happened if people allowed this complaint to create a schism within them and divide. A takeaway for me when I read this is, is for me to take my complaint first to the Lord the one who's able to deal with that, to change me, to change the way I see people, and to change the situation. God's able to do that. And if the Lord reveals an offense in me towards someone else, then I need to go to that person and talk to them about it. And if there's a serious problem that needs to be addressed with church leadership, we shouldn't just bail without talking to them. Being patient to work towards a solution. I think about, would you, would you agree that if you have a paper cut or a, a hangnail, it would be a bit extreme to, to amputate that finger. Is that the way to deal with an irritation? A sore finger? No. A paper cut is much more easily healed than an amputation. So instead of just cutting yourself off from the body, let's seek to the healing of the whole body, because when that finger is hurting, the whole body is feeling the pain. It's affecting everything. God's brought us together, and let's work together to spread his word. But the word will actually spread freely when we are in unity together in Christ. Acts 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Stephen, in verse 5, he's introduced as it says, being full of faith in the Holy Spirit. 
the presence of the Spirit within him. There was evidence of these wonders and signs that he did. And it wasn't long before people from the synagogue of the freemen, uh, composed of people from various regions, they disputed with Stephen. In verse 10, where it says they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit, that means to oppose or to stand against. So he's saying God's wisdom, and they cannot stand against it. They don't have an answer. In, in discussions and debates, he just was working them over. They had nothing on him, right? He has the, he's speaking the wisdom of God, and they cannot oppose it in any way. It's as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 19, and 20, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour in what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. How amazing that God would speak to us, and he would speak in us. He would speak through us. And that is the wisdom by which God founded the universe. And we can speak forth his word. We have this concept that if we had all the facts, and if we had all the answers, and we said them in the right way, everyone opposed would see things God's way. Well, this passage shows that that's not the case. He's speaking the wisdom of God, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was opposed, even as Jesus was opposed. And they used very much the same tactics to silence Stephen that they used against Christ. Verse 11. They, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Heard that before? And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Stephen could not be trapped or tripped up by the little snares they laid before him. So the people of the synagogue of the freedmen, they stir up the people. They gossip about him. They slander him. And for speaking the truth, he's accused and branded as a blasphemer. Jesus was hated, he was envied, he was arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, and the same is done with Stephen. They also had the false witnesses. They, they're like throwing mud, hoping something's going to stick to this guy. Oh, he spoke blasphemous words against the temple, against Moses, against the law. I mean, they're just, they're throwing anything out there they can. And this misrepresentation, we see that with Jesus. Remember, Jesus cleansed the temple. And he said, they said, who gave you authority to do this? What sign will you show us that, you know, that you have the right to do this? And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Speaking of the temple of his body. Now when he's brought before the Sanhedrin, this is what they said, his accusers in Matthew 26, 61. Um, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. How about Mark 14, 58? We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Again, that is not what Jesus said at all. He never said he was going to destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And from that, 
they got their accusation. There's a disconnect between what Jesus said, what he meant, and what they believed he said, or what they accused him of saying. So they took it as threatening that Jesus was going to destroy the building, right? And he was talking about, you're going to crucify me, but I'm going to rise from the dead after three days. These sorts of things will happen to us when we hold to God's word. When we speak the wisdom in love, led by the Spirit, there will be times where people will not hear it, they will not receive it, and they will distort it and twist it around and accuse us of being evil. If you could please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. We read of uh, what Paul has said to the church there. Speaking about how there's a difference between the regenerate person, the one who is born again, and the one who does not believe in Jesus. One Corinthians two verse twelve. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You've received the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in Jesus. We've been given the Spirit from God so we might know the things that we have been freely given, been given by God. The wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit, the wisdom that the Holy Spirit teaches, and the wisdom of man are completely opposed to each other. They don't agree on anything. There's no agreement between them. We are able, through the Spirit, to understand and to rightly apply the Bible to everyday situations in our lives, in our decisions. Paul says the natural man, so who we are before Christ, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. So they cannot understand, and they will refuse. They do not want to receive it. And that's the difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate. These people that Stephen spoke to, their minds were stubbornly against everything that God said, and they despised his messenger and his servant. Was Stephen approved before God? Certainly because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was approved by those in the church, but on the outside, he was disapproved, called a blasphemer and accused. So it says there at the end, we have the mind of Christ. What does that mean, to have the mind of Christ? It means we have the same love as he has. We're of one accord, united in him. We're doing nothing through strife or vain ambition. In humility, in the next chapter, it says, considering others as more important than ourselves. That's the mind of Christ. Jesus considered others more important than himself. And it's seen in faithful service before God and men. If you could turn to Philippians 1, 
27 and 28. See what Paul wrote to the church there. And it's something that we see in the life of Stephen. None of us are worthy of the gospel, but we're called to walk worthily of it. It says in Philippians 1.27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. Instead of striving for power or being greedy for gain, God's people are to stand united in the Spirit of God. It says, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way afraid of their enemies. I can say, I'll ask it in two different ways. I'll say, do you think Christians can be afraid to speak the truth of the gospel because they know people oppose it? Certainly they could. And the question is, are you afraid to speak the truth of the gospel because you know that people are opposed to it? If we did not need this exhortation, it would not have been written. The reason why it's written is because we do fear opposition. We do fear being labeled as a hater or a bigot or a blasphemer. But fear of our enemies reveals a lack of faith in God. We can be of good cheer because Jesus overcame those who struck him and accused him and who spat on him. He overcame the cross and the grave. And it's a great challenge when it, when it actually comes down to it. Because it's one thing to say that, oh yeah, in the case, in, in the face of adversity, I'll be strong. And then something that's hardly adversity, we, we show our true colors in a sense. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, faith, wisdom. He was charged with very grave crimes. He knew the person who charged him, Caiaphas. He was the one who uh, led to Christ being arrested and crucified. And yet it says in verse 15, And all who sat on the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. So here's a man who's looking death in the face, and he's not flinching. They're all watching him. They're hearing the false accusations. They know what's the penalty for blasphemy. And they're looking at him. They're going, how is he going to react? Is he going to be scared? Start backpedaling? Start uh, making excuses? <clears throat> Look like someone who's going to beg for mercy or want to run? He has the face of someone who knew God and he had peace from God. And that made an impression on those who accused him. <clears throat> Why do you suppose Luke included this observation? We'll see in the next chapter that there's a huge contrast between his visage, his face, his words, and his responses compared to theirs when he has, when, after he speaks. So they've spoken, they've accused him, they've lied about him, they've said all these false things about him. Well, he's going to speak the truth to them, and we'll see how they respond. And it isn't pretty. It isn't angelic in any way. See, this facial expression, this rest, is not the face of a man 
when he knows his life hangs in the balance. This is unnatural. This is supernatural. This is something these, it shocked those who looked upon it. It's something they remembered. Paul, the apostle, may have even been there at this time. He was from Cilicia, the synagogue of the freedmen. Cilicia is included. It's very possible that he was numbered among them. We don't know. But the fact that Stephen had peace in the storm, it was proof of his salvation. They're like, oh, he's guilty in one sense. But he's like, I've already conquered death. He's not afraid of death. You know, we don't have to face life-threatening circumstances to lose our cool, to lose any semblance of an angelic appearance. Just this week, I had to repent and apologize when I was defensive and feisty over a simple question. It was a simple question. I was on edge. And if you had looked at my face at that moment in the stern expression that I wore, it would have presented no evidence of rest or peace or confidence in God. No, no joy of the salvation at that moment. And that's something to repent over. You say, Lord, in conflict, in the conflict, help me not just to put on a show or have this look of, hmm, kind of smug. Not smugness. Rest, peace. When your life is on the line, if we're going to remain united and steadfast in the faith and in the Holy Spirit as a church, we have to deal with our own sin first. That's something Stephen had done. The church was able to resolve conflict without schisms and splits because they were filled with the Spirit and they were patient to love one another. And they dealt with problems together, not like ultimatum time. If you don't do this, then I will. Totally different. They didn't allow problems to distract them from their individual callings, but they submitted to one another in love. Christians are rarely confused with angels, but may our faces in the fiercest opposition reflect souls at rest in the arms of a loving Savior. We're like, you know what? I love you. And that's the fact. That's how I feel right now. I'm not just trying to hold it in. Anyone here ever been inside a gym? Hmm? I, I have been in a gym once or twice, but when you go, you'll likely find yourself surrounded by mirrors. Lots of mirrors in a gym. And they say, well, why, do there, why are there so many mirrors in a gym? Well, there's a few reasons you're given. Uh, the most common is it's to make sure that you're lifting properly, right? Good form. You want to make sure you're lifting it properly, not putting yourself in a bad position. It also makes the place look larger and brighter. And, and let's face it, people like to look at themselves. They like to see themselves and they're a bit pumped up and ripped. They're like, oh, yeah. And something about the lighting just, it just makes you look more cut, perhaps. I read a stat that said half of the people that go to the gym actually never work out but are there to pick up dates, which I thought was hilarious. Half. I think we're all people watchers to some extent. But we are all called by God to give an account for ourselves. Not to look around and say, you know, that's a guy that should be at the gym. Right? What, what is that? Take a look at yourself in the mirror. Not just physically, but spiritually. Look at yourself in line with the, the word of God and how Stephen and how the church here is resolving conflict. Is this the way we resolve conflict? 
maybe not even in a church structure, but in your family. When there is a disagreement, when there is a complaint, do you listen? And are you at rest when you deal with that? Because your security is found in God, not in pleasing somebody or impressing somebody or just looking good. Not trying to show off. As good as physical exercise is, examining ourselves to ensure we are living in a godly manner, it's paramount. 1 Timothy 4.8, it says, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of life that now is and that which is to come. So let's be those who examine ourselves, who, who take a look in the mirror, not to see what other people are doing, see if people are watching us, but to see, am I walking worthy of the gospel, the grace that God's given to me? Having the mind of Christ, let's be that fit and healthy believer and healthy church who's enabled by, by God to be all that he's created us to be. When we see needs, God might use you to meet that need. God might use your insight to deal with a problem. That's a real problem that needs to be dealt with. Let's be people of good reputation, filled with the Holy Spirit and his wisdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are, you're patient with us, you're good to us, and you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You've given us everything for this life and for the life that is to come. And I thank you for the way that we see the church dealing with conflicts uh, and complaints in in the book of Acts, and also how we see Stephen dealing with false accusations and people who hate him, and, and really people who hate you, and him dealing with that in such a, an intentional way, not being passive, not being clueless or careless about his own life, but because he was committed to you, he was committed to follow to the end and to walk in a, in a godly way. And I pray, Lord, may such love and grace mark our lives too. Thank you for the family that you've made us in Christ. Thank you that Jesus is our head and we're all united in him. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to look at ourselves in the light of your word and to see if there be, Lord, you'd show us if there is wickedness in us that we must deal with. And when there's complaints or questions that are brought to us that we wouldn't uh, revile or accuse, but be uh, submitted to you and to one another in love. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, and I praise you again for the wondrous things you do in Jesus' name. Amen.